This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for a more detailed description. Welcome. I'm Knox County District Attorney General Sharm Allen. Thank you for joining us on Generally Speaking, where I will discuss important issues impacting public safety with expert frontline prosecutors who are seeking justice each and every day. The District Attorney General's office can sometimes seem shrouded in secrecy. This is most often due to ethical rules that prohibit us from discussing pending cases. Our goal is to pull back that perceived curtain and tell you exactly who we are and what we do in the pursuit of justice, both in the courtroom and the community. Generally speaking, of course. Welcome to the fourth episode of Generally Speaking a podcast series where we examine specific types of crimes through the lens of our special prosecution units. So far, we have discussed homicide cases, domestic violence cases, and drug cases. For this episode, we'll be sitting down with our child abuse team leader to discuss crimes perpetrated on our most vulnerable victims, our children. To provide a better understanding of current child abuse data in our community at the time of this podcast, I share the following. In 2019, our office processed and reviewed approximately 1,200 reports of child abuse along with our investigative partners. That's about 100 cases per month. In 2020, during COVID, our office reviewed just over 1,100 reports of child abuse. Last year, over 90% of the children that were abused, either sexually or physically, in our community knew their abuser. Our office also routinely prosecutes more sexual abuse crimes than physical abuse crimes, where children under 18 years of age are the victims. With us today is Assistant District Attorney Nate Ogle. General Ogle joined our office in 2014. After beginning his career as a criminal court division prosecutor, he quickly moved into the child abuse unit and quickly became the team leader. There, he has not only prosecuted numerous child abuse cases, but he also works with the Regional Law Enforcement Human Trafficking Task Force in the investigation and prosecution of individuals who victimize persons through sex trafficking. Welcome, General Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Generally Speaking. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. All right. Well, let's begin our direct examination. Child abuse is a difficult topic to discuss, but it's vitally important for our community to know what to look out for and what to do if you suspect child abuse. I think it's also helpful for people to um, understand how child abuse cases are investigated and prosecuted. So let's just start with the types of cases that are routinely assigned to the child abuse unit. So typically in the child abuse unit, we deal with physical abuse of children. So that can be in the form of neglect uh, or abuse Sometimes, sadly, that turns into a homicide case. So we have abuse and neglect cases that are protracted or become so serious that a child sometimes dies as a result. So we deal with homicides in those contexts. Uh, Occasionally, an intentional homicide uh, in a single incident with a child as well. Uh, Our unit is also tasked with handling sexual abuse cases with children. So we do those as well as sexual exploitation, uh, which most of the community would know is is child pornography. So the unit is also tasked with handling those types of cases and working with local law enforcement and also uh, our federal counterparts in dealing with those types of cases. Um, Those are obviously very heavy cases to have to deal with. Um, Can we 
tell our listeners, uh, when we refer to the term children, can you talk about the age range of the cases? Uh, children might mean different things to different people. Yeah, so when we're talking legally, uh, what we mean is from a very small child, an infant, uh, all the way to 18 years old. So we're, we're looking at under 18, all the way to infancy. Uh, we've seen cases uh, where abuse and neglect, sexual abuse, homicide, with all of those ages uh, up to uh, 18. So very, very difficult situation with children that young. The Tennessee law requires all citizens, not just doctors and teachers, to report suspected child abuse. Can you tell our listeners what mandatory reporting is and what they should do if they suspect abuse? Yeah, so in the state of Tennessee, there's a law that requires anyone that sees uh, child abuse or suspects that child physical or sex abuse is occurring to report that. And there's lots of different ways. Because you're required to do that, there's lots of different ways to make those reports. When we go out and speak in the community and talk about this is either, one, uh, by making a referral via the online portal with the Department of Children's Services. You can do that there, or you can also go uh, to their phone number and you can call them. Uh, It's 877-237-0004. Any of those referrals that you make can be uh, anonymous, so you don't have to uh, put your name on there. But it makes sure that children in the community are protected whenever you file those reports, and it's very, very important. We don't have the opportunity uh, to protect children if people don't do the right thing and, and make it known that a child is suffering. I've heard people in the past say that they don't want to report because they're afraid to get involved, afraid they may be sued or drug into court themselves if the abuse turns out not to be uh, something that's occurring. Can you talk about how the law actually protects individuals who report from having that backlash? Yes, absolutely. So not only, did, like I mentioned earlier, is that person, can that person be anonymous if they, they so desire to be anonymous? There's also legal protections in place for a person that that files that sort of report. Because the law requires that they file it, uh, they're also legally uh, protected from any sort of claim later on about that. Uh, Certainly, the legislature wants to encourage folks to report any suspected child abuse. So we do have to all work together to protect our children. Well, we've talked about the reporting. So uh, walk our listeners through what happens when a report is actually received by law enforcement. Well, typically the way that that works is when someone makes a report either online or on the phone uh, of suspected child physical or sexual abuse, that then goes through a screening process with the Department of Children's Services in Nashville, and then that's assigned to the local DCS office, and then it's assigned a certain level of priority. And so if it's deemed that it's an immediately uh, appropriate to, to go out and respond, then Uh, The law enforcement agency is uh, contacted, whether that be the Knox County Sheriff's Office or the Knoxville Police Department here in our community. So it depends on who has jurisdiction in a particular case. And DCS and then that law enforcement agency goes out and they make response response on the scene. And um, at that time, they begin to gather evidence. They talk to witnesses. They interview appropriate persons. And they might gather physical evidence, whatever is is necessary uh, to begin the process of fully investigating and vetting uh, a particular claim or incident. And once that's done, uh, that information is then brought before the uh, Child Protective Investigative Team, 
which is a, a body that's uh, put together by statute under Tennessee law, and that occurs here locally. It includes most local law enforcement stakeholders who then review the evidence that applies in a particular case, and it gives all of us an opportunity to sort of see what's happened, what's been done in an investigation, and at that time, it's determined whether or not there's evidence to substantiate a particular claim of sexual abuse, a sexual assault that's been perpetrated on a child. And after that's done, if indeed it is substantiated, uh, that information is then typically brought to our office and the Knox County District Attorney's Office makes a decision as to whether or not uh, there's, there's sufficient evidence to criminally prosecute an individual. If there is sufficient evidence to prosecute, tell us what happens once the prosecution phase begins. Yeah, so once once our office gets that file in, typically what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the file, all the evidence. We're going to vet that and determine whether or not we think um, we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone's guilty of a crime. And, and oftentimes that also involves sitting down and meeting with the victim's family, meeting with the victim themselves, and uh, determining what they want to do, what they want to see occur uh, in a particular case. And once everyone feels comfortable to move forward and we know that um, the, the victim and the witnesses are going to uh, be compliant in the investigation, that they're going to uh, move forward in the case, then we would take that case to the Knox County Grand Jury and present it to them. And if indeed the grand jury all agrees that there's enough evidence, there's probable cause to believe that the incident occurred, then it would come out of the grand jury and the person would be formally indicted in the Knox County Criminal Court. And at that time, we begin the formal process of prosecution. So I always like to think about everything that occurs before then as the investigative phase. And then once the case comes out of the grand jury, we are in the formal criminal prosecution. One of the things that uh, you just talked about in the process is that once our office decides to prosecute, we begin at the grand jury phase. Folks have asked me before, why don't you take out warrants? in these child abuse cases. Why is this different? Why do you skip the warrant phase? Could you tell our listeners a little bit about how Sessions Court works and why we don't take warrants in these cases? Yeah, absolutely. So whenever we take a warrant in a child abuse case, that necessarily means that almost always the child would have to take the stand. They would have to go in front of a Sessions Court and their statement would be on record at that point and they would also be sitting there facing uh, the individual who perpetrated against them. So that's something that we try to avoid if at all possible because we want victims to feel comfortable. We want them to be prepared for their testimony. And oftentimes in, in sessions court, things sort of operate at a shotgun level. They move quickly and, and we don't get that same level of, of time with the victim where they feel comfortable and ready to testify. And it's particularly important with the child because once someone testifies in general sessions court, their testimony is on record. Um, it's never uh, going to go away at that point. So we have to make sure that they're comfortable and they're ready to testify. And uh, that's definitely an important consideration. There, there are special circumstances where we might have uh, a situation where we need to proceed by warrant. And we do that when it's necessary. If we think that the, the defendant is a serious flight risk, um, if we think that this is a crime that's just so heinous, we, we need to get that person in custody immediately. We certainly will do that. But in most cases, because the Department of Children's Services removes the child from the danger, we are able then to sort of slow the process and go through a full investigation and then take a case to the grand jury. Um, so DCS is very, very integral into that particular aspect because they do allow us to have some time 
to, to complete an investigation before we have to move immediately, and that prevents us from needing to put our victims on the stand in General Sessions Court in most circumstances. And that time that you talk about, that that definitely helps us in preparing our case and being more prepared, but it also gives these victims um, whose lives have often been turned upside down once they make this report more time uh, before they have to engage the system. So it really benefits, I think, the children, the victims, as much as it does the system to be able to, to skip the first stage and have more time to get to that grand jury stage. So good points, good points. You've talked about part of the process in preparing uh, the prosecution is sitting down with the family and talking to the family. And I believe that um, I spoke in the opening, too, about how the majority of these cases, uh, unfortunately, these victims are victimized by often a family member. So can you talk a little bit about how that influences these cases as far as going to trial versus pleading these cases because so many of them actually involve children testifying against family members. First and foremost, I think it's important to consider that these are highly emotional. They're impactful cases for the young people involved because, like you said earlier, a very high uh, proportion of uh, child abuse cases are familial in nature. That means that the person that committed the crime, the perpetrator, is uh, very, very likely to be a family member. So whenever we're dealing with that type of situation, we want to to develop a rapport with the victim. We want the victim to feel comfortable and to be prepared to testify. But oftentimes there are situations where a victim may not be comfortable to testify. They may not want to go that route. So oftentimes if that's the case, is as long as they're, they've been involved in the case and they're willing to discuss it with us, um, we do seek other ways to resolve a matter. So that might be in the form of, of a plea. Uh, but I always made a habit, and I've always made a habit when dealing with child abuse cases at the outset to make it clear to any victims that we work with that ultimately there is a decent chance that the case will go to trial and that they need to begin to prepare themselves for that, so what I think that that involves is sometimes getting counseling in place, uh, making sure that a child is prepared to talk about the traumatic experience that they've dealt with at the hands of another family member, uh, so they will be ready for that eventual moment when they have to go up and testify in a trial. But a lot of times, uh, people do want to avoid a trial, and, and if if it's possible to resolve a case. We do certainly try and do that because many times families uh, would prefer that all of these things that took place in their home uh, not be aired out to the entire community. So that's something that we always keep in mind and we try to talk with victims about. And because these are oftentimes familial cases, can you talk just a moment to our listeners about the struggle that these children actually go through Um, because oftentimes these perpetrators are uh, fathers, uncles, aunts, uh, people that they actually love and people that actually provide for and care for them uh, 90% of the time. But it's that 10% of the time when that individual is doing something very harmful to the child and how that's an internal struggle for these children. Yeah, I I think that you definitely hit a, a solid point there because what typically happens with young people when they've been physically or sexually abused in the home, they've dealt with a protracted period, a long-term period of abuse, being exposed to things that most of us can't even imagine. So 
uh, for them that creates all sorts of emotional trauma and sometimes there's physical problems that that uh, result from the abuse and it takes a long time for a child to to learn how to process that it's hard enough for adults to know how to deal with with traumatic incidents that happen in their lives much less a child um, so it, it does create issues and those are things that we have to overcome uh, when we begin to prosecute a case of this kind I think that most prosecutors can pinpoint a case or a moment where they knew that they'd chosen the right career path. I like to call that an aha moment. I had my aha moment nearly 30 years ago when I was assigned my um, first case as a child abuse prosecutor. Have you had any aha moments that you're willing to share with our listeners? Yeah, I, I think of so many different moments that have occurred during the course of child abuse or child sex abuse trials but the biggest thing to me, and the one that always sticks out, the common thread, is a child that's taken the stand despite how difficult it is. They've gotten up there. They've talked about something that was incredibly difficult for them to process and to live with. For most of these children, this is going to be a sexual experience or a physical abuse situation. And most people, even adults, wouldn't feel comfortable getting up and describing a, a sexual situation in their life to 12 total strangers, much less a child. So you've got a child getting up there and talking about this. And when they do that, and at the end of the trial, the jury returns a guilty verdict, and they hold that person responsible for hurting them, um, to see that child vindicated, to see the look on their face uh, when they know that these people believe them. It's an empowering moment for them, and I always think of that as, as sort of the biggest experience that I've taken away from child abuse is, is that so many kids, they feel helpless and they don't feel empowered. And, and when they have that vindication, it can really start to turn around things in their life. My aha moment was a little different on the other end of the spectrum because you talk about children who've been abused their whole life and, and no one believed them. And so they finally do have 12 strangers that finally believe in them. Um, my aha moment occurred with a child that had not been abused for a long time. Uh, it's when I first became a prosecutor near over 30 years ago now. And uh, one of the first cases I was assigned was uh, a young girl who was kidnapped from her bedroom. Uh, as she slept at night, a perpetrator came in and took her from her bedroom, took her out the window. And we had posted the next day her picture on all the local media. Uh, everyone was looking for this small child. There was a elderly couple eating breakfast in a neighboring county out in the country. And as they were eating their breakfast, they had the child's picture on their television and they heard a knock at the door. And when they heard the knock at the door, the lady went to the door and answered it. And it was the small child standing at her door in the country. And the child had on no clothes and she was crying. So they recognized her immediately. They wrapped her in some of their clothes and called police. We were able to determine who we thought had kidnapped this child with some other uh, information that we had. But at the time, we had to have the preliminary hearing that you and I were talking about earlier. Uh, we had arrested by warrant uh, because we knew this perpetrator was a man that had just gotten out of prison. He'd spent the last 20 years in prison for kidnapping two young girls out of a wedding reception in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, 20 years prior to that and doing the same thing to them. And so uh, he'd been in our community less than a month and he had kidnapped this young child. So we knew we had to... Um, have an arrest warrant for him. And this child had to testify and identify him. 
And so it was one of my very first cases. And as you can imagine, this child was very traumatized. And she came to court for this preliminary hearing just a mere 10 days after this incident had happened. And she had a group of supporters with her. She had her family. She had some counselors. And she also had a large group of people from her church with her. And um, when she got to court, uh, we explained to her that she had to testify and identify this perpetrator that had kidnapped her and um, abused her. And so, as you can imagine, she certainly did not want to come into the courtroom. And um, I went into the court as a young prosecutor. This was one of my very first cases and and was scared to death, quite frankly, at the time. Uh, And went in and told the judge, um, she will not come into the courtroom. I can't get her in here. Um, But I think maybe if you would let her sit in someone's lap, Perhaps that would encourage her and she could come in. And of course, the defense attorney objected and didn't like that idea at all. But the judge, uh, Judge Bobby McKee, uh, decided that that was appropriate. And so I went back into the room and I I got down uh, on her level. I bent down. I I just remember it like it was yesterday. And I looked her in the eye and I said, "Um, the judge is going to let you sit in someone's lap. You can choose anyone you want and you can sit in someone's lap. And I really thought she would choose her mom or her counselor. And she looked me right in the eye, and she said, I want to sit in your lap because you make me feel safe. And um, I remember that like it was yesterday. And I remember the impact that I had on that little girl. Um, And we went into the courtroom, and she did testify. She sat in my lap. Um, Once I told the judge it was going to be me that the little girl had chosen, of course, the defense attorney objected again, but we overcame that. And so she sat in my lap and she testified and it was horrifying. Um, She cried and she did not want to look at the perpetrator. She didn't want to identify him. And she cried and she um, screamed and I held her uh, and she buried her head on my chest and cried into my suit. She finally got up the courage to look at him and identify him, which is all we needed uh, to be able to keep him in jail. Um, he is actually still in jail. Um, but um, she she made that identification and we went home and I made it through all that. And when I went home that night, I remember looking into the mirror and I'd held it together as this young prosecutor all day. But when I looked into the mirror, I saw her tears and her sweat just ground into the lapel of my suit. It was an orange suit with blue striping on it because I still have that suit today. It hangs in my closet as a reminder because when I saw that in my suit, I just lost it. Uh, And I cried and I sat down and really realized what an impact we make as prosecutors and specifically, especially in these child abuse cases. And so um, that was my aha moment to know that I was doing the right thing for the right reason and making a difference. So I do think that these child abuse cases are very emotional cases, Um, whether you're dealing with a child that's been abused for years and years and no one believed them until you, the prosecutor, come along and and fight for them, or whether it's a a stranger abduction situation like I had. But that's just a, a little glimpse into different views from prosecutors' perspective uh, in child abuse cases. We've talked about that most of these kids know their abuser, but there are other times that children may encounter those who want to harm them or other times that children might be at risk. Can you talk about some of those particular times? 
Yeah, one of the immediate circumstances under which kids, especially these days, come into contact with someone they don't know is online. We all know that there's a lot of risk factors associated with children being online, not only mentally and emotionally, but also whenever a child goes online, uh, most of the time, unless they're, they're strictly speaking to other kids they know, and we know that typically that's not what happens. They get on apps they get on other chat functions and they speak to people that they don't know. And, and those people, I always say to assume that those people do not have good intentions. And some people might say that that's a negative view of the world or that's the way that I see things. That's the, that's the best way, I think, to protect kids. As, a, as parents in the community, I think we all need to be watching what our kids are doing, who they're talking to online, because uh, it's safe to assume that there are adults that, that have negative intentions that are engaging in online communications with your children. What should folks do if they suspect that their their child is engaged with someone online that they shouldn't be engaged with? How would they go about reporting that? Well, if you want to report that, if, if you notice that uh, that individual is, is trying to solicit uh, maybe sexual photographs from your child or they're engaging in a sexual conversation with your child, you want to report that immediately to the law enforcement a- agency uh, whether that be the Knoxville Police Department or the Knox County Sheriff's Office, if it's an emergency situation, call 911. Um, uh, that's often the best thing to do. Uh, and then they will figure out who the, the right law enforcement agency is to make response. So you definitely want to put that report in as soon as possible because when you do it quickly, that gives law enforcement an opportunity to intervene um, because the conversation's not been cut off. The conversation is ongoing at that point. And that provides law enforcement a window of opportunity to get involved, maybe to assume the child's online identity and to continue that conversation in such a way that it allows law enforcement to gather information that might permit them later on uh, to make an arrest. So it's so important to get law enforcement involved in that sort of thing. I think that folks think about online activity as maybe just staying there online, that perhaps uh, it'll just be their child sending photographs or talking to somebody. I'm sure you've had cases where online activity has led to a perpetrator trying to actually physically meet up with a child. Can you explain how that can escalate and what can happen and why letting your child talk to strangers online can actually end up being more than just online activity? Oh, absolutely. So there's been more situations than I can count off the top of my head where I've looked at investigations or I've been involved in investigations that ended up culminating in prosecutions where individuals, adults were online, they were talking to children, to young people, and uh, what might have started out as an otherwise innocent conversation, the adult then began to groom the child. They began to talk to them in a sexual way. And then that ended up with the adult trying to meet the young person or trying to solicit uh, inappropriate photographs from the child. And once they do that, once they set up that meeting, that gives them an opportunity to engage in sexual abuse. So we want to intervene in that as soon as possible. That's why it's so important uh, to make that report to law enforcement. And another thing to think about is even if you think, okay, it's just online, maybe my child just provided a photograph, and that's bad enough. But what happens then is that individual can then take and send that photograph online. They can give it to other people. They can sell it. Or they can take that photograph and attempt to uh, ransom your child, to hold them ransom online, to provide further photographs. Or they can say, uh, well, perhaps what I'll do is I'll release the photograph if you don't meet me in person. Uh, 
So all sorts of bad further criminal activity uh, can stem from a simple online conversation. So we have to make sure and report that as soon as possible to end any possibility of further violence or or abuse. Uh, Well, we've talked about uh, child sexual and physical abuse. We've talked about child exploitation, online activity. Um, And I stated earlier that you serve on the Regional Law Enforcement Human Trafficking Task Force for our office. What does human trafficking look like in our community, and how does that intersect with child abuse? Well, human trafficking is, is an unfortunate thing that happens in our community. It happens across the state of Tennessee, and, and essentially what that looks like most of the time uh, are individuals who uh, have a group of either uh, young people or women, sometimes men, where they are using those individuals to go out and to make money uh, through sex acts. Uh, typically, they have uh, the people that are performing the sex acts, they have them um, hooked on narcotics. So drugs plays a huge part in human trafficking. And uh, that person, that victim, is completely dependent upon their trafficker. Uh, that trafficker, they, they use that dependency against the victim uh, to make them engage in, in sex acts for, for money. So it's an extremely... Uh, big problem. It's something that we're constantly looking at how uh, we can fight that and new ways to fight that particular problem. The way that it intersects with children, and most commonly that I've seen, is through runaways, through uh, children that have run away from DCS. Maybe they've run away from their home. Uh, they've left a facility that's run by the state of Tennessee, or they, they've just left their family home. Maybe that's because they're hooked on narcotics. Maybe it's because they have a bad situation in their family home. Uh, But there's lots of different things that put kids out on the streets. And once a child is out on the streets and and maybe they're hooked on narcotics, they are easy prey for human traffickers. That's where a trafficker comes in and says, "Um, well, I'll provide you housing. I'll provide you drugs. And once a child has provided those things, then they're expected then to to, uh, engage in trafficking acts to do sex acts at the behest of this individual trafficker. So, so important to get involved and to try and stem that early on. So if, if you know, there are runaways, if you see someone that's a runaway or if you see a child that's going through uh, problems with addiction, it's so important to report that and to make sure that that child receives the help that they need because you do not want them to become uh, part of the human trafficking problem because once they're sucked into that system, it's so difficult for a young person or, or even an adult, for that matter, to get out of it. It is. We've, I know I've seen through the years so many adults, uh, like you said, that are involved in human trafficking that started as children uh, and have unfortunately been in that system for years. So it is critically important for folks to speak up uh, and report things that they see or hear so perhaps we can save some of these children and adults. Uh, from human trafficking. Well, we've talked about children. Uh, we've talked about human trafficking. Let's talk about prosecutors for just a second. And I know prosecutors don't generally like to talk about themselves, which I know that includes you too. Um, but this type of work can really take a toll on somebody. Uh, it's very heavy for law enforcement. It's very heavy for prosecutors, especially in this type of case. So, can you talk just a moment about how you handle this secondary trauma uh, that you are exposed to day in and day out as a prosecutor? I think the number one thing that uh, I try to do is on these cases, especially when you're dealing with child sexual exploitation or, or child pornography, 
we lean on the experts in that field, the, the ICAC, which is there are officers that are tasked with doing these types of investigations. They do all the initial work, and they're great at providing us reports that show the information, that provide uh, all of the numbers that we need to prosecute these cases. And then as we're preparing a case, if we know that this is something that we're going to have to prosecute, we're going to have to potentially take to trial, then as the prosecutor, um, you might have to go in and actually view the material. But, but those officers are so good at their job. Oftentimes, you know, we just try and rely on their initial work to make sure that we minimize our secondary trauma as much as possible. And um, another way that, that often prosecutors, including myself, deal with it is to, to simply try and compartmentalize. I, I think that that's a big part of, of being a prosecutor and dealing with uh, traumatic situations is figuring out ways that we can leave that at work and uh, keep it in its place and then come home. And, and that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, I, it's easy to say compartmentalize, compartmentalize, but um, that's something that you have to really focus on and you have to think carefully about that this material and these issues and these problems stay here and uh, the rest of my life is over here and, and to really focus on that divide as much as you possibly can and because otherwise the, the task of a prosecutor it, it's not easy at all it would be even more difficult um, if you you brought those things home and I, and I know that there have there have been people and prosecutors that, that have had problems with that in the past, and it's an extremely difficult thing to deal with. And uh, if you're going to do it for long, you better be able to, to, in some way, at least compartmentalize and find ways to deal with that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more as to the compartmentalizing. Um, that's how I dealt with it um, for all those years. And I knew that I was coming out of that once I became the elected. Uh, here's another quick story, but um, I was in child abuse for over 20 years. And so I had become very um, compartmentalized as far as emotion in these cases. You just can't become emotionally involved in them or you just won't be able to function and do your job adequately as a prosecutor. So um, I had become so non-emotional in these child abuse cases that I really didn't realize it. It had basically become normal to me. And um, the first time that I realized I was coming out of that compartmentalization is when I became the elected. And uh, the then child abuse prosecutor brought me a case and said, hey, I need your opinion on this case. Can we talk through it? And I remember looking at that case and opening that file and having this emotion of, oh my gosh, this is awful. I don't want to look at this. I'm having an emotional reaction. And that's the first time that I had had a normal emotional reaction to seeing this type of thing in so long. And I realized, wow, uh, I really was compartmentalizing during all those years in child abuse. And so it, it was horrible to experience those emotions. But in a way for me, it was... Um, knowing that I was becoming non-traumatized, um, for lack of a better word, from child abuse once I had an emotional, appropriate emotional reaction to looking at a file. So I think sometimes as prosecutors, we don't even realize uh, what we're doing uh, when we're doing it and, and because we are so good at compartmentalizing. 
Well, you've talked a little bit about ICAC, uh, which is Internet Crimes Against Children uh, unit with our law enforcement that actually looks through our photographs for us uh, on our online child pornography. But tell me, are there any other agencies in our community that work with us as we fight against child abuse that we haven't mentioned? Did we leave anybody out? Well, absolutely. So there's several organizations. They play an important role in fighting child abuse and, and child sex abuse in our community, first and foremost, that comes to mind is Child Help. So Child Help, uh, they are an organization that does forensic interviews. Uh, they provide medical exams. They provide several different services, including uh, therapeutic services to children that have been abused. And, and they are sort of like a one-stop shop for child abuse in our community. They have individuals that are certified and licensed to perform forensic interviews and just for our listeners, the way that that works is, is that's an opportunity for a child to come in, to be interviewed by a person that has experience and the right types of questions to ask about a child's trauma. And it gives a child an opportunity to be heard and for them to be fully interviewed and for that interview to be not only audio recorded, but also video recorded. So then we have a copy of that interview and we can review it, engage uh, in the investigative phase of a case whether or not that's going to be a case that we can prosecute. But I think it also serves another purpose outside of prosecution. It's therapeutic in that it provides a child an opportunity to talk about a terrible thing that's happened to them in a safe and comfortable environment. And then after that's over, if, if a medical exam is necessary, they can do that there. Uh, and they can also receive therapeutic services through their licensed counselors at Child Help. So that's one of our, our big partners in fighting child abuse in the community. Another uh, organization that I've worked with through human trafficking is just the local human trafficking coalition, and, and they do a great job at helping to provide services for not only uh, young uh, victims of human trafficking, but also adult victims. Um, they have worked with, with individuals before that, that are young. They provided housing for human trafficking victims so uh, they are integral to our, our mission here in the community. And also, of course, the Department of Children's Services. I mean, they, they provide uh, valuable services, not only by getting involved early on and by, by making sure that a child's protected and they're in a safe environment, uh, moving them away, getting them away from their perpetrator, um, but they also then provide services to families, to parents, to kids, um, so they, 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 they really uh, serve an important role in protecting kids and also making sure that they get what they need after they're removed from their perpetrator. Um, so all three of those organizations just immediately come to mind. There's so many others, as you know, in the community, but uh, those three, along with, of course, our, our team at the uh, East Tennessee uh, Children's Hospital, uh, our forensic physicians, uh, forensic pediatricians over there, uh, they do an awesome job at looking at injuries that children have suffered and helping us to come to a determination of whether or not this is a case that we can prosecute and, and trying to determine what the mechanism of that injury was and, and whether or not um, that particular injury was caused by child abuse. And, and that's so important to get that medical examination and to, to not only for, for the criminal process, but also to make a child feel comfortable, to let them know that they're going to be okay, that whatever's happened to them is something that, that they're going to heal from, not only emotionally, but also physically. Uh, one thing that I would say to our listeners, uh, you mentioned Child Help, and Child Help happens to be uh, the organization that provides our 
Child Advocacy Center here in Knoxville. No matter where you are, if you're listening, uh, if you have any issues with child abuse, please seek out your local child advocacy center because all the child advocacy centers are pretty much set up. Like General Ogle explained, it's really a one-stop shop for these children that so desperately need help. I think that we have just about covered all of the topics today. General Ogle, I truly appreciate you being with us today and sharing your wisdom and knowledge. Uh, It's greatly appreciated. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk, and I want to thank you for giving me the chance to talk about child abuse and the impact it has in our community and what we're doing to combat it. And now we'll move on for our closing statement. The first thing we need to say in our closing statement is please, please do not forget the mandatory reporting information that you have heard today. The state of Tennessee does have mandatory reporting for everyone. You don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to be someone who has authority over children. It's anybody in the state of Tennessee that suspects any type of abuse, physical or sexual, please make that report and know that uh, there is mandatory reporting here and that there are laws that will protect you. You can report that anonymously, as we've mentioned, or if you do give your name, there are laws that will protect you from being sued in any type of civil matter because really what's most important is protecting our children. You can find ways to report child abuse if you need that on our website at knoxcounty.org DAG. And both the Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking and Street Hope here in our community provide internet safety training for any parent or child that would like any kind of information on how to protect yourselves against human trafficking. Our office also has training opportunities. If you need any kind of information, our office will be glad to come out and do that training for you as well. It's our job to protect and nurture our next generation. Thank you for sticking with us on this important topic. For our next episode, we will sit down with our Career Criminal and Gang Special Prosecution Unit. Please join us as we discuss yet another important topic for our community. If you want to learn more, we've included links to sidebar conversations in the show notes. Don't miss out on more behind-the-scenes content. Thank you.